Brothers and sisters, would you grab hold of a Bible and would you open up to the book of Philippians? I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 1 this morning to set us up. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, hear the word of our God. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will not turn out for my deliver this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do love your Son. That's why we're here. We love the Lord Jesus. And we ask now, as we listen this morning, that you would stir up our hearts to live for him. And that we as a church would be a people who live for Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme of most of the sermons this summer have been centered around the word ambition. And so our four ambitions have been on repeat throughout the summer again and again and again. And accompanying these ambitions, we've had these challenge cards calling you to do specific things, volunteer for certain activities, get behind certain initiatives. And this morning, there's not going to be a challenge card. I'm not going to call you to do a certain activity or task. Instead, I want to focus our attention on the word that we've been using so much, ambition. And I want to wrap up this whole challenge series by focusing on ambition. And my aim this morning is to give us an understanding of ambition. What does it mean to be ambitious for Jesus and his gospel and his people? 
And to do this, I could offer up a definition to you, like you'd find in a dictionary and then work through it, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Instead, I want to offer you someone's life. I'm going to uh, give a, a sermonic biography of a man by the name of Richard Hobson. And my hope is that by giving you his life, you might get a taste. You might see what it means to be ambitious for Jesus, his gospel, and his people. And so I, I love biography. I make that confession readily, especially Christian biography. I'm always reading some sort of Christian biography, whether about a pastor or a missionary. And this summer, during my holidays, I read about the life of Richard Hobson. And I want to bring what I learned on my holidays to you to help you. Now, you might not be well acquainted with Christian biography, especially in sermonic form. Or maybe you've read some biographies and you don't like them. They seem a bit dry and dead to you. And so before I, I give you Hobson's life, I just want to give you two pointers on how to make use of this, this sermon. And so the first pointer is this. Biographies are for inspiration. So every good Christian biography should say something like this as it tells the story of someone's life. It should say this, look at what God has done here. Look at his grace, look at his power, look at his mercy, look at what God has accomplished in history, in the life of this person. And sometimes we're guilty of forgetting about this. We forget that our God yet does great things. We read about his great deeds in the Bible we see him splitting seas, we see him raising the dead, we see him converting whole nations with just a, a single sermon, but we are insensible often and ignorant of what God is doing now and in the past. But what a good biography does is it comes to us and it whacks us over the head and the biography says to us, dear reader, or this morning, dear listener, God isn't done yet. He isn't done working. And when a good biography does this, it, it magnifies God's grace and kindness in history. An inference should be drawn by us as listeners. He might very well do that sort of thing again. He might very well do that sort of thing in my city, in my lifetime, in my church, perhaps in my own life. I might get a taste of that power and grace and mercy and kindness. And when we draw that inference what happens? We're motivated to take action for Jesus and his gospel and his people because we're convinced that our God is yet at work. So second pointer is this. Biographies are for repentance and reformation. And so what Christian biography does is it offers the listener a chance to get outside of himself and, and herself. When we're bound up in the busyness of our lives, we get bound up in our routine. All we can see is just what is in front of us in our, our cycle of schedule. And when we're bound up in the busyness of our lives, we think our lives are normal. This is the way everybody lives. But what Christian biography does is this. It comes to us and it starts asking us questions. A good biography will do this. It'll whisper to you as you listen. Is your way of living the Christian life good? Is it wise? Is it right? Is it biblical? Is your way of doing church, is it wise? Is it good? Is it right? Is it biblical? And biography does this by showing us how other Christians opened up their Bibles, read their Bibles, and sought to obey their Bibles in their present time. And what happens is when we see a life lived, we start to see our own blind spots where we're missing it. 
We can start to see our own blind spots in ways we have never seen before. And so Christian biography works for our repentance and reformation. So as we look upon Hobson's life, we might be able to learn about ourselves with, with pointed particularity. Our weaknesses might come to light. And my prayer and hope is that as you, as you listen to Hobson's life, God might reform you and even change you in the listening of it. Those are just two pointers. We're listening for motivation and inspiration. We're listening for reformation and change. So let's look at Hobson's life. I'll give you a brief overview to start. So Richard Hobson was an interesting man. He was born in 1831 in Ireland to a poor farmer and his wife. And Hobson experienced much trouble and trial in his early years into young adulthood. He, li- he lived through the Great Potato Famine. And so like many Irish of the day, during the Great Potato Famine, he starved. He lived off the charity of others, and that's how he survived. As he got older, into his teenage years, his father died. And so he was left to care for his mom as a young adult. He came to know the Lord at the age of 12. His pastor had two daughters and they taught a Sunday school class. And it was through their teaching and their friendship and their kindship that the word of the gospel landed on Hobson. And he had a solid standing in the Lord and he was eager to know and follow the Lord Jesus. In his 20s, he worked a series of odd jobs as a gardener and farmer. And in the midst of there, he was recognized for his zeal to the Lord, and he was then appointed as a missionary of the Irish Protestant Church to Roman Catholics. And if you know anything about Ireland's religious history, you know that there was no cushy or safe post. Hobson was a zealous man for Jesus, and his zeal was met often with violence and insult and danger. In his early 30s, Hobson moved to England and entered the Anglican ministry, and that was by a mistake. He thought he was applying to a college in Ireland, but instead that letter got sent to a a college in England, and he got accepted there, and so off he went, and it was a happy mistake because he would spend the rest of his life in England laboring in the Anglican church as a local pastor. Hobson did a bit of traveling in his life, more than most. He took several trips to different parts of Europe. He spent a good amount of time in the Holy Land. He even came to Ontario and spent a significant amount of time, several times, in Ontario visiting family. And I could keep going on talking about Hobson and all the interesting things of his life, this man who lived in the 1800s. There's so much to learn about his conversion, how the Lord worked in his early childhood. There's so much to learn about his missionary work to Roman Catholics. There's so much to learn about his dependence on God, God just meeting him in his poverty. But instead, I want to just focus in on one period of his life, the 33 years that he served as the pastor of St. Nathaniel's in Windsor, Liverpool. And I want to labor here for a bit. I want to set these 33 years up like this. St. Nathaniel's was not a destination. It wasn't the sort of place that you dreamed about. You're in college, you're in seminary, you're dreaming about this ministry post. It's not the place that you would dream of. 
And it was like this for a few reasons. First of all, St. Nathaniel's was a brand new parish. So population in the city was, was rising and, and the church leadership recognized that there was need to carve out a new parish with a new work and so that there would be pastoral oversight for these people. And that meant issues. And the issue was this. There was no church building. There was no church manse. There was no church infrastructure in place. Everything would have to be built from scratch. And so Hobson began his ministry by meeting in a cellar with no windows that was dark and dank. And there was three women and one man. That's where he started his ministry. Second, and this was the real problem of St. Nathaniel's, this new parish consisted of the poorest of the poor and the most destitute of the city. The area was crime-ridden, dirty, and downtrodden. Some called it 16 acres of sin. That's where Hobson was called. And just listen to Hobson. He, he writes about this city and he describes it like this. Its area was socially and morally the lowest in all the southeast portion of Liverpool. The houses were all small and badly built and narrow courts and inhabited cellars abounded. And this caused the place to be a hotbed of fever and other deadly diseases. One street was unfit and even unsafe for the passage of ladies. Another was so wholly given over to the social evil and was known as the little hell. The inhabitants generally were styled the roughs of Windsor and advertisements for laborers constantly indeed usually bore the ominous warning, Windsor men need not apply here. And the third reason was this was a place of failure and bad report. Previous to Hobson, two men had tried to establish a ministry in that parish and failed. One man started working, but he soon lost heart, and he gave up the ministry and walked away. Another man was called and given the parish, but he yearned and he longed for recognition and for riches, and so when a, a better post came, he bolted out of there. And so this is what Hobson was called to, St. Nathaniel's 16 acres of sin. And we can say this about St. Nathaniel's, it wasn't easy it wasn't light, it wasn't comfortable, and it was not glorious at all. And so that's the setup. But catch this. Though it seems like the deck was stacked against Hobson, everything is working against you in every single way. Hobson in the Lord found success after success. I would just want to fight, cite a few numbers just to help you just get your arms around the success that happened in these 16 acres of sin. Two years after his installation in his pastoral role there, he found the church packed and he had some 200 believers as church members. And this would be the same theme for the next 30 years of ministry there. He started with four people, three women, three women and one man in that dark cellar. But by the end of his ministry, after 33 years, there's a thousand people worshiping together on the Lord's Day. At the end of his ministry, he had one-fifth of the inhabitants of his parish worshiping in the church. And not just that, he had another thousand or so people participating in the various ministries like Bible studies and men's missions in the city. And to add to that, on Sunday afternoons and Sunday evenings, they had what they called Sunday school, teaching people to read, teaching people the Bible and catechism. And in one year, they sometimes served about a thousand children a year. And in their charity work, one year they gave away 16,000 meals to the poor of their city. 
So those are just some numbers. Just help us see the success that the Lord gave. But the numbers don't well tell the story of what happened there. Those 16 acres of sin, those places known as the little hell were totally transformed by the gospel. The very character of that part of the city was changed. Remarkably so, Hobson's bishop, J.C. Ryle, later on would boast of, of Hobson's work in this place. He said, there is not a single house of ill fame nor a single known infidel in that parish. The place was changed by the ministry of the gospel. So the question I want to ask is this. Well, how did that happen? How did that happen? Well, the answer we give right away is, well, well, God did something there, didn't he? God did that. He, He transformed that part of the city. And by the power of his gospel, he gathered all of those people together to worship the Lord. But we can't settle with just that answer. We want more texture to that answer, don't we? We need to look closer. We need to think harder. How did God do that? What did God use? How did God work there? And as I read the the life of Hobson, I think the answer is this. It was ambition. Instrumental to the transformation of that parish, instrumental to the building up of that church and the transformation of that society was the ambition that God sovereignly planted in Richard Hobson's heart. God gave Hobson a certain sort of heart and that was instrumental. And Hobson speaks of his heart. The very first day of ministry in St. Nathaniel's, he wrote this down. My induction and reading myself in caused me to feel more than ever the weight of the work. And I was well nigh overcome by contemplating the awful degradation and the terrible poverty in which a large proportion of the people were living or rather existing. And I realized this. I realized that an iron will and the strength of a lion would be needed to and to continue doing that which must be done if those people were to be one for the dear Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? An iron will, the strength of a line, or we might say, as we've been thinking about this summer, ambition is what Hobson realized what he needed if this place was to be transformed and if Christ was to be known and loved. And what did God do? God gave him the ambition. He gave him a strength of a lion and an iron will. And I want to look at this ambition very closely and I want to describe it in four different ways for you. So if you're taking notes, there's four descriptions of Hobson's ambition, trying to get a sense of what it looked like. So description number one, it's this. Hobson's ambition was governed by sound principles. Hobson's ambition was governed by sound principles. And so we see Hobson's ambition. We, we know his end. He wanted to win souls for Jesus Christ. He wanted men and women to come to know Jesus and love him for all his worth. He wanted to gather all the souls in his parish into the church so that they might worship the Lord. But how did Hobson do that? Did he do it through charm and fast talking? Was it his personality? Was it his brilliance? Was it his marketing and advertising? Was it a simply a matter of smart programming? How did Hobson do it? And these are deeply important questions because the Bible does not just care about our ambition. Yes, we want souls to come to know Jesus, but the Bible also cares how we go about winning souls for Jesus. And so at the beginning of his ministry, Hobson sat down a series of rules for himself 
and for the church that would direct them and govern them in their ministry. And so I just want to read a few of them to you. Number one, that for sin in poverty and dirt, in evidence on all sides, even under the very shadow of God's house, the gospel of his free grace is the first and chief remedy. Second, that in every department of the work for God, the Holy Spirit shall occupy a prominent place. Third, that all teaching, whether in the pulpit or outside it, shall be on distinctly evangelical and Protestant lines. Fourth, that the services shall be plain and warm and hearty and as such can be joined in by all. Fifth, that the one great aim in all church work shall be the spiritual regeneration of souls and their sanctification seen in the life of faith and of its outcome, good works. Six, that the work shall be missionary as well as congregational and pastoral, that the Lord shall be made known in the homes of the people, whether church or chapel or Romish. Next, that only communicants or, or church members shall be eligible as wardens and sidesmen and teachers and singers and visitors or for any regular church work. Next, that to prevent there being drones in the church hive, the pastor shall not do work which might be done by others. Going on, that the the pastor shall always be willing to receive any who call upon him, whether members of the congregation or not. That extempore prayer shall be freely used in the pulpit. And last, that the people shall be taught to regard the church as God's house, placed by him in their midst for their use. And from these rules that Hobson laid down, we get a sense of what was going on in his heart, how he did his ministry. He was a faithful servant of Jesus. And what's interesting is when you place Hobson in the context of his times. On the one hand, Hobson was trying to stay clear of the temptations going on in the church of England. Many were trying to grow their church roles and they were trying to do this through intricate rituals and massive choirs. And that was the way of church growth. How many rituals can we put into this service? And that would draw the people in. But what do we see? Hobson wants nothing to do with that. And what was Hobson doing? We can see that he was just grounding himself in the pages of the New Testament, reading the New Testament, and as best as he could, trying to obey the New Testament. And so that's the first description of Hobson. His ambition was governed by sound principles. Description number two, Hobson's ambition was fixated on a particular end. His ambition was fixated on a particular end. So distraction is something that we all experience in the human life, some of us more than others. We set out to do a task or, or to get a task done or to go get something and something else comes up and then we forget about, we set aside what we set out to do in the first place. But Hobson displayed a remarkable consistency throughout his ministry. Whether he was in the pulpit preaching or whether he was in a home visiting, whether he was on vacation, supposedly resting, he sought the salvation of men and women wherever he was. And because of his fixation on the souls of men and women, his life is full of fruitful conversations about Jesus. I'll just give you a couple examples. I could go on and on this morning but two are helpful just to get the flavor of his life. So this first example comes from an interview he had with a candidate 
before his confirmation. We get to see here the directness of Hobson as he dealt with souls. And so Hobson writes this. In the personal interview I had with him, as with all the other candidates, just before the day appointed for the ride, amongst the questions I put to him was this one. Are you born again? What a pointed question. Are you born again? He first looked at me and then looking down said with much feeling, I should like to be. We knelt down at an old box which stood in the anteroom of the ragged school and the lad with his hands covering his face rested upon the box while I lifted up my heart in audible prayer to the Holy Spirit that he would be pleased to beget this boy anew in Jesus Christ. I then arose, but he remained motionless, still on his knees, still at that box. Waiting a little, I again knelt and I pled for the gift of a new heart for that dear fellow. Again, I stood up, but he, he made no movement. He, he stood, st- stood there, still there. And feeling as if my heart would break, after another slight pause, I went on my knees the third time in earnest supplication for the blessing of the new birth. And then I got up, feeling I could do no more. Almost directly, he also rose, quite calmly, and reaching out his hand for mine, said in an assuring tone, the blessing has come. The blessing has come. And Hobson tells us that this man walked with the Lord the rest of his days, a faithful church member, an eager servant of Jesus. Are you born again? That's what Hobson would ask. What a great question. Are you born again? Another example from his ministry, and it shows how faithful he was to the gospel, never leaving it aside, never distrusting the power of the gospel, just keeping at it. So he tells this story. An intelligent, respectable working man whom I knew to be a Christian called at my rooms one evening with a companion and said to me, I have failed to show my friend how to find peace with God, which he is anxiously seeking, so I have brought him to you. And so we sat down around a table and finding the friend to be earnest about his soul, I opened up my Bible to Isaiah 44 and I read verse 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. I read to him God's own absolution in his own blessed words. I laid special emphasis on have, pointing out that it was not something that shall be or will be or may be, but something that has already been done. And this is the great boon and blessing. It must be received by faith and gladly. But the poor fellow could not see it though I put it to him in a variety of different ways. And on leaving my room, the man asked if he might call again on me the next week. And so he came, and I took the same passage out, putting the word of the living God before him. But he appeared unable to accept pardon on such easy terms. And so he left again and asked if he could come the next week. And he came again the third week, and on this occasion, too, I kept to Isaiah 44, 22, and while I was presenting its blessed truth for his acceptance by simple faith, he suddenly raised up one of his hands and striking the table with such a blow that I thought my landlady might be alarmed, and he cried out with joy, saying, I see it, I see it. That was Hobson's ministry. He just kept to the gospel because he knew that is the only word that could save. 
the only word that could save. And you see it with this man. He did not leave the gospel behind, but kept preaching it and preaching it, waiting for God to give faith. And God did. I see it. I see it. And this fixation of Hobson's was not just a matter of public ministry when he was on the clock at work. This fixation was rooted in the interior of his heart. And and Hobson gives evidence to this as he talks about how he prayed for the people of his parish. He says this, To travail for souls is of God. It is part of the true minister's and evangelist's work, which is not seen of men, being that which in the privacy of God's presence engages the mind and the heart. It is to hope and long and yearn and wait and watch and pray and agonize for and to expect the new birth of souls through the word of God. And that's how Hobson lived his life. He was fixated on salvation. Third description. Hobson's ambition was helped along by the willing partnership of his people. His ambition was willingly, was helped along by the willing partnership of his people. And so there's no denying it, Hobson was a dynamo of a man. On average in his ministry, he visited 75 families a week. He preached up to three or four times a week, and he was the head of up to 20 different ministries. I don't know how he did it. He was never married, and that helped. He never had children, and that helped. But nonetheless, this man was a stick of dynamite. But it would be a mistake to think here as we gaze at all of his work that this was just the work of one man. Hobson led the charge. He was a spark that lit a fire. But what was quite amazing is the work that his people did in the ministry. And I just want to give you a few numbers, just to give you a sense of what was going on in St. Nathaniel's. So at the end of his ministry, there are about 800 church members in his church. And about 200 of them were engaged in carrying out 27 different charitable ministries and evangelistic ministries in their city. Another 104 members were engaged in carrying out the Sunday school ministry, Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening. And so if you're totaling that, that's about 304 church members. But there are more ministries as you read about his life. And so my estimation is about 400 or so church members were actively engaged in ministry. And these ministries were no flimsy ministries. These were hearty ministries doing real and hard work in the city. So what do we see? We see Hobson's people were, were joined at the hip with him. And this was a true partnership, not just a partnership of work and getting ministry done. It was a partnership of great affection and love. It was his people who at certain times in Hobson's ministry who carried him along and kept him at the work of ministry. So at one point, after about 15 years at St. Nathaniel's, Hobson's health broke down. Mentally, it broke down. Health-wise, it broke down. He was suffering from severe insomnia, only getting a couple hours of rest each night, and it's not a wonder why. The man was working 60, 70 hours a week, every week. And so out of love, his bishop, J.C. Ryle, offered him a new post. And all of Hobson's friends in the the ministry were urging him out of love to move. Get out of St. Nathaniel's for the sake of your own life. His doctor was urging him, saying, if you continue here, you will die. And so Hobson took the post. And this post was a step up. It offered better pay, way better pay, less work, more rest, 
better environment, a way better part of the city, more prestige. And so Hobson took it. But what is interesting, his decision didn't last very long. You have to love this. A large group of men from the church went to work both on Hobson and his bishop, J.C. Ryle. And so Hobson tells us what happened. He says, a large deputation consisting of male members of the church came to me so that I might reconsider the matter of my departure. As I listened to what they said and saw their sorrowful and loving looks accompanied in the case of some by their tears, I felt not only as I must accede to their request, but also as if I could lay down my life for them. I was quite overcome, and when they had finished, I said out of a very full heart, friends, I withdraw. I withdraw. And then J.C. Ryle, so Hobson's bishop, records this. And I think this is the best. So Ryle writes, When I heard there was a number of men at my door waiting to see me from St. Nathaniel's, I suspected what they were about. So I saw them and heard them, And I think if I had not agreed to your withdrawal from that post, they would have knocked my head off. These were people who loved Hobson. And it's evident in their willing partnership with him, in the work and in love. And one last description. Hobson's ambition was fed and it was fueled by the simple means of grace. So Hobson was a dynamo. You can't dispute it. He did, I think, the work of four or five lifetimes in 33 years. And it makes us wonder as listeners, well, what was the secret to his success? What was it that sustained him in his efforts? And certainly we can point out a number of factors. He was a driven man and God gave him such a constitution that he could do this work. He had the support of his people. He was a gifted preacher, an evangelist, an organizer. All of those must be factored in. But still, what was this man eating and drinking that gave him such energy and effectiveness in ministry? What I love most about Hobson's story is that when you ask that question, there isn't much of an answer to give. There's not that much to say. He didn't do anything all that special. There is no secret power to find in his life. There is no superpower to latch onto. What did he do? He prayed twice a day. In the morning and in the evening. He read his Bible every day in the midst of his busy schedule, just carving out little chunks when he had time to to study and write for his sermons. He went to church every Sunday. He fellowshiped with God's people. He sat under his own preaching and he ate and drank bread and wine. That was it. That's all that Hobson did. That's what I love the most about Hobson's story. And here's an important lesson to learn. That the simple means of grace, the means of grace that are accessible to all of us, daily prayer, daily Bible reading, going to church, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, fellowshipping with the saints, sitting under the preaching of the word, partaking in communion. That's what sustained Hobson. That's what gave him his fruitfulness. And the lesson is held out to us. Do we want to be sustained in our lives? Do we want to run the race that God has set before us? What do we need to do? We need to take up the gifts that God gives us, the simple means of grace, going to them with faith, expecting that God will sustain and nourish us with all that we need in Jesus. So that's the fourth description. Hobson's ambition was fed by the simple means of grace. 
Much more could be said about Richard Hobson. There are so many more stories that could be shared. When I outlined the sermon, I had a lot more descriptions and I had to, to cut a lot of them out. And all of that would be profitable. But I'm going to end here. And if you want to read more about Hobson and know him better, you can read his book. It's a great book. I recommend it. It's called Richard Hobson of Liverpool, subtitle, A Faithful Pastor. But I think ending here with this short, very short sketch of Richard Hobson, you get a sense of what ambition is all about. Ambition for Jesus, his gospel, and his people. Because we see it in Hobson's life, flesh and blood. And as we close, I urge you, brothers and sisters, think over this man's life. Ponder what God did and how God met him. And as you ponder, ask God that he would so motivate you to take action for Jesus and his gospel and his church. And at the same time as you ponder Hobson's life, consider, consider yourself. Are there blind spots that are exposed to this man's life and ministry? Ask God where you need to change and, and turn around and grow. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace. Hobson's life was all of grace. You did that. It's all of you, and so we glory in your name, and we thank you for the testimony of grace that you give us in his life, that his ministry continues on even today. Oh, Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with ambition for Jesus and his gospel and his church. Would you feed us and sustain us? Would you motivate us to take action? And would you change us? Give us repentance, we pray. And we pray all of this in Jesus' great and glorious name. Amen.